You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Good evening. All right. Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. That's Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. We are continuing our study of the seven letters to the seven churches found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And this week, uh, we're going to be looking at the fourth letter, which is the letter to the church in Thyatira. And if at any point in this sermon my inner uh, redneck comes out and I call it Thyatira, you'll have to uh, bear with me. I don't anticipate it happening, uh, but the trash runs deep, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can't help it. Um, so yeah, the letter to the church in Thyatira. Um, last week we looked at the letter to the church in Pergamum, um, and in that letter, just, this will all come together, uh, in that letter we saw that Jesus was rebuking the church in Pergamum for their compromise and for their worldliness. And this week's letter is very, very similar. Uh, the problems, you'll see as we read this text together here in a few minutes, the problems are nearly identical. And that's because compromise is something that every church in every age has to continually guard against. And when I say compromise, I mean compromise with the world. Compromise on some aspect of the gospel, whether it be the divinity of Christ or uh, the penal substitutionary uh, atonement, right, that Christ took the wrath of God in place of sinners, whether it be the bodily resurrection of Christ, right, some kind of compromise on the truth of the gospel, uh, a real hell that people go to maybe, um, not that they maybe go there, but maybe that's a compromise you'll make. That's a for certain thing. I just want to be clear on that. We, we affirm the doctrine of, uh, of hell in this church. Um, but yeah, maybe it's a compromise on the gospel or compromise on some truth, um, even the smallest truth found in the scriptures. Uh, one of the biggest ones that a lot of especially mainline uh, denominations in the United States have been compromising on lately is human sexuality, gender, homosexuality, and those kinds of things. Again, compromise. It's always a temptation. Every Christian in every age is pressured to bend the knee to the culture around them and adopt its ways and its thinking. We're always tempted to do that. And in doing so, the Christian is tempted to abandon the Lord Jesus. So just listen to me real quick. To compromise on the word of God, to compromise on the gospel, is to abandon your Lord. To compromise is to abandon Christ. But why is compromise so appealing? I think that compromise is so appealing to nearly everyone, okay? And it's okay to say, yes, compromise can be appealing uh, because we want to be accepted. Do we not? We want to be accepted and we want to be liked and we want to be comfortable. This is why compromise is so enticing to us. We want to be liked and we want to be comfortable. We don't like it when people think poorly of us. Right? We don't like being the object of mockery. We don't like people thinking that we're stupid or, quote, behind the times. Right? We don't like the threat of losing our jobs or losing our businesses. We don't like the idea of not being able to climb the ladder in our careers, whatever they may be. So when the world demands that we compromise on truth or suffer the loss of these things, compromising seems to make the most sense to our flesh. It seems to make the most sense to our sinful nature. 
I'll push it one further. Compromise is especially tempting to us as we look and see those who have bowed down to the culture doing well, right? Seeming to do well, right? So like you look at, I'll give you an example, the Episcopal church in town. They're a gay affirming, trans affirming church in this area. And what do you see people say on social media? They like them. That's what a Christian looks like. That's how Christians are supposed to act. They're accepted by the culture. They seem to be doing well. Right? They're so modern and inclusive and accepting. People who bow to the culture and compromise aren't generally threatened with poverty and loss of income. They're not hated by the culture. In fact, they're championed by the culture because they've compromised. Right? They're, quote, on the right side of history, which is the dumbest phrase in the world. And if you'd like to talk to me about why that's dumb, please come see me after the service. We don't have time for that right now. And there are children present. I don't know what I'll say. Um, but, but they're the ones, the ones who have compromised are, are the ones who seem to be well-liked and who seem to have an easy go of things. And their only enemies, oddly enough, are the ones who have refused to compromise. We can look at these so-called Christians and how accepted that they are by the world and easily be enticed to imitate them in their acceptance of sin and rejection of the fullness of the gospel and biblical truth. It's easy to be enticed by this kind of stuff. This is a real temptation for many of us. But brothers and sisters, we must not compromise. We must not. Our Lord Jesus has purchased us with his blood. We've been bought with a price. Listen to me, Christian. You don't belong to you anymore. You are not your own. You belong to the one who gave himself for you. By grace, we have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and sin into the marvelous light, right, that is knowing Christ. We've been brought into a new kingdom that cannot be shaken, and we now pledge allegiance to one king. We have no right to defy this good, loving king who gave himself for us. We've been saved from the wrath of God by our Lord. He's put away the wrath and punishment due to us for our sin by the blood of his cross. And we dare not scorn his work done for us by continuing to play in sin and condone sin. In short, the Lord Jesus Christ has done too much for his people. He has been too kind a king. He has given us too great a salvation for us to compromise and turn from him to embrace the world. He's been too kind to us. And if remembering the goodness of our Lord and his grace and mercy on us isn't enough in the moment to keep us close to him and keep us from compromising, then listen, we must then remember the great judgment that he promises on those who compromise with the world and refuse to repent. People compromise in order to avoid suffering and hardship. But as we'll see in this letter, Christ, the judge of all men and the one who executes justice and judgment, reminds us that to compromise in order to avoid hardship in this world is to set yourself up to experience his wrath in the world to come. And that brings us to our text this evening. Like I said earlier, this letter shares a lot in common with the letter we looked at last week to the church in Pergamum. Lots of similar problems. But in it, uh, we're going to see a short but solid commendation of the church in Thyatira, followed by a very long rebuke uh, full of threatenings to a false teacher called Jezebel and those who follow her. And after all this, like in the other letters, we're going to come to the promises for the life to come for those who remain faithful to the Lord 
and conquer. So with that being said, um, let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, prepare our hearts to receive and accept your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we might hear your word and also do it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so there's some historical context you need to know. Uh, in order to best understand some of the stuff in this letter. So we're just going to look at some important stuff real quick, and then we're going to do what we always do. We're going to go verse by verse through this letter. Um, Thyatira was a really small city, right? It, it was the smallest and least significant of all the cities that the seven letters went out to, right? But in spite of how small that this city was, it had a ton of trade guilds in it. Trust me, this all makes sense in a minute. It's going to for your benefit. They had a lot of trade guilds in there. Right? Think like unions, right? like carpenters' unions, stuff like that. They had a lot of trade guilds. There were guilds for bakers, bronze smiths, linen workers, tanners, dyers. Right? Think of dyes. Remember Lydia in the book of Acts, a dealer in purple goods? She was from Thyatira. Right? Dyers. There was a guild for potters, slave dealers. Right? Guilds for all kinds of jobs in Thyatira. Lots of guilds there. And every guild had a patron, god or goddess. Right? That, that was supposed to look, at, look after the people who worked in that um, field or whatever. And if you wanted to join a guild, if you wanted to get a job in that union, uh, you would be expected to worship that false god, who was ever, whoever was the patron of that guild, and participate in feasts to that god. And those feasts often in, in, included some kind of temple prostitution. Uh, and if you wouldn't do that, right? uh, if you wouldn't sign up to, to partake in this idolatry, then you couldn't join the guild. And what you were doing, basically, if you didn't join the guild, is you were signing up to be poor. Right? Now, there were other jobs to have outside of the guild, but they weren't good jobs. Right? Think day labor or stuff. You're not sure if you're going to get work or not. It's very, uh, very shaky. So many Christians who refused to participate in idolatry ended up becoming poor. And when we say poor, 
It's not, again, it's not American poor. This is I'm going to miss meals kind of poor. I'm not exactly sure what we're going to do because I don't know if I'm going to get any work today or not. Right? That kind of poverty because they wouldn't join guilds. So in Thyatira, there wasn't outright persecution. All right? There wasn't murder in the streets like Smyrna had dealt with and Smyrna was going to deal with. Remember that letter? Uh, so there's not outright persecution there. But there was indirect economic oppression and persecution of Christians who refused to compromise and worship false gods. Um, and in that, there was a strong temptation for Christians to compromise on the faith in order to join these guilds and provide for their families because they didn't want to live in poverty. Not only that, uh, but if you wouldn't join a guild or participate in the idolatry um, that you, you would be expected to as part of that guild, then you would be considered a social outcast, right? People wouldn't have much dealings with you because you wouldn't worship their gods. They kind of wash their hands of you. You're the social outcast. You've been ostracized, and you're poor, right? So that's what you're, that's what you're facing. That's what you're looking down that barrel if you won't join one of these guilds, basically. This is a city ran by guilds. Uh, and one last thing. And it's going to be immediately important to our first verse. Um, The people of Thyatira, as a whole city, loved to worship the false god Apollo. If you know your Greek mythology, uh, he was the son of Zeus. And since he was the son of Zeus, who is the god of gods, right, the king of gods, uh, one of Apollos' nicknames was the son of God, right? And he was the patron god of that city. So everyone that lived in Thyatira pretty much worshipped Apollo and called him son of God. And over time, these pagans also worshipped their emperor. And they began to associate the emperor with Apollo. So after a while, the emperor took on the title son of God. And the people called him that in worship. Right? And this title was probably meant to signal how important the emperor was and his might and sovereignty over the city. He is the son of God. Right? So with that in mind, Let's go ahead and jump into this text. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Right? Jesus describes himself in three ways here. Right? So let, let's, let's look at them each. The first thing he says is, The words of the Son of God. And that one honestly makes me, made me laugh a little bit once I realized the historical context. It's like Jesus is saying, Hey guys, like I know... What, you call, what they call Caesar around you. I know what they call that false god Apollo that some guy made up a long time ago. Um, I know that they like to hail Caesar as son of God, but I just want to remind you of something in case you forgot. I am the son of God. I love that. Jesus is, with no disrespect towards him, he's kind of a smart aleck here, right? In a good way, a holy smart aleck, if you want to call him that. Uh, he's saying, I am the son of God. That is my title. That is my title. I am the only begotten one of the Father. Right? And I love this. I love that Jesus is being polemical with these pagans. I am the son of God. Because Jesus is the unique one. With this title, he's calling to arms all the faithful in Thyatira. He's saying, remember that I am the only God. Remember that I'm the only one you're to worship. I'm the only son of God. In this title, Jesus is proclaiming that he's the second person of the Trinity. Co-equal with the Father, possessing the divine essence in and of himself and the ruler of all things. Not Caesar. Not the false pagan gods. Not the city of Thyatira. Jesus is saying, I am the sovereign. These are the words of the Son of God. You owe your allegiance to me. Not them. Your allegiance comes to me. 
not to any false pagan god or arrogant emperor who would dare call himself by this title, but the Lord Jesus alone. We owe our allegiance to him. Not to any culture or opinions of men or wrath of men that would tempt us and push us to disobey him and abandon him. The words of the Son of God are words that are to be heeded and bowed down to and obeyed. As I've said in past sermons in this series, he is the authority. And we owe our allegiance to him and no other before him. Our obedience is to him first. Right? The first commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me. There are no other gods. You're, you're, I'm not going to compete for anything. You will have no other gods. He's saying, I am the son of God. The second thing he says, eyes like a flame of fire and feet of burnished bronze. We're going to look at those together because this is a symbolic picture of judgment. But I'm going to read to you real quick. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. Right? It's one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus in the whole Bible. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His clothes or he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread with his feet, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord lords that's jesus that's that's our king and that is a terrifying picture of jesus if you're on the receiving end of that right these eyes of fire mentioned in revelation 19 that we just read and also in this letter and also in chapter one jesus describes himself i am the one with eyes like a flame of fire these are eyes that see all christ is the omniscient lord nothing escapes his sight. And I mean nothing. And I know I said this last week, but it bears repeating because I don't think that this comes through our head too often. He sees it all. Even the things that you think nobody knows but you, even the things you did in private, even the things that you thought that no one knows that you thought, Christ knows them. He's seen every thought, every word, every deed you have ever had or have ever done. These eyes penetrate through every person, leaving their hearts exposed to the judgment of Christ. He knows what you have done, and he knows why you've done it. These fiery eyes search mind and heart, as we read later in this letter. Christ sees, eyes like a flame of fire. And these feet of burnished bronze, burnished means polished or pure bronze, represent his judgment as well, as we read in chapter 19. These are the same feet that tread out the winepress of the wrath of, or of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Right? So these are pure, polished bronze, reminding us that all of Christ's judgments and actions are pure. They're holy. His judgments are just. He never, will not the, the ruler of all the earth do right? Right? His judgments are always just. He executes a holy justice. And since he stands on bronze, I love this, his reign is uncontested. No one knocks this king over. He stands stable and immovable in his judgments. 
And again, he treads out the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. These symbols are meant to make us sit up straight and take notice. The only unmatched, incomparable Son of God who judges all men and sees all things, who executes a pure, holy, unchanging judgment and tramples on those who oppose him, writes this letter to the church. This description of Jesus is intended to put all and reverence, and a holy fear into the heart of the one who's reading it. And it's meant to strike fear of punishment into those who have compromised. Jesus describes himself like this for a reason. He says, listen, do you remember who I am? Have you forgotten who I am? Have you swung to one side so hard that you think that I'm like, again, like this hippie Jesus from California that you see people talk about all the time? Have you forgotten who I am? That I'm the judge? Eyes like flame of fire? Have you forgotten? It's meant to make us pay attention. But now we come to the letter. And Christ begins this letter by commending them for their good works. Verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus spends only one verse commending the church. But in it, he does say a lot. But he says it quickly, and I think that's for a reason. So we're going to say it quickly as well. He says he's pleased with this church as a whole. When he looks upon the church, he sees much good from the majority of the people there. Right? I would argue if it wasn't the majority of the people there that he's commending, that he wouldn't have said it if the whole church was just overrun with awfulness. Right? So I think the majority of the church is actually doing pretty good. And he says that he's pleased with the majority. Uh, and he mentions their love, that they love him, right? Rather, they love him, and they love one another as well, which is a mark of a true church. They have affection for Christ. They really care about each other. And he says that he, he's, he knows their faith, meaning their faithfulness, right? He knows that they trust him and that they love him and that they're not compromising. They're continuing to declare the truth of the gospel and live by it. I know your service, which is probably a reference for how they care for the poor among them. Remember there are those among them who are suffering economically because they won't join the uh, idolatrous trade guilds. He says, I know how you care for one another. I know how you take care of each other, your service. And I know your patient endurance, that you hold fast in, face, or in the face of the paganism surrounding you in this city. He says, I know you're enduring well. Now, th this church is continuing to give a sound witness as a whole to the lordship of Christ and the truth of his gospel. And even with the problems that Christ is going to address, he looks out on the church and he takes note of their good works and faithfulness. And he even says, your latter works exceed the first. This means that the faithful in Thyatira, Thyatira have grown, right? They, they've kept up the good work and are found to be doing better now than when they first believed. This is a beautiful commendation of this church. It sounds like a very good place to be if you just read verse 19. But I'm going to stop here and make a note. Jesus says good job in this one verse, and it's right before he's about to give four verses of rebuke, which is really wild to think about. This sounds like a glowing commendation from, from the Lord before four verses of rebuke. But I want to highlight something that I've been holding back for a couple of weeks. Um, Jesus gives commendation where there is commendation to be given. He says good job. I am pleased whenever there's something that pleases him. He encourages, right? He doesn't only rebuke his people. And, so, and you might lose sight of that because there's only two letters where Jesus has nothing negative to say, right? So of each of these seven weeks, there's only going to be two weeks where Jesus doesn't say something to rebuke his church. And you can forget that. 
uh, or you can forget, rather, that Jesus actually commends them. Jesus is, rather, he always says that he's pleased whenever there's something that pleases him, even if he's going to address something terrible. And why is that? Even with all the junk going on in Thyatira, why does Jesus take the time to commend them? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. You might miss this if you read these letters quickly and don't give it much thought. He doesn't have these letters written because he just wants to be harsh. He doesn't have these letters written just because he wants to prove a point and point out the sin in the churches. No, he has these letters written because he loves his people and wants their best. It's as if Christ says, I love you and I gave my life to save you and I want you to be holy and spiritually healthy and full of joy and, and good works and a good witness to me. So when I see sin in your lives and I know how it destroys, I cannot and will not sit back and do nothing. It's like he's saying, I will warn you. I will rebuke you. I will even threaten discipline and judgment because I love you. And I want you to flourish. And I know how sin will ruin you. Christ's readiness to point out good in a congregation ought to remind us that when he points out sin and calls us to repentance, it's not because he's overly harsh. It's because, indeed, he does love us. But now we move into Christ's rebuke, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus is angry because the church has tolerated. He says, you tolerate that woman. They've tolerated. They have allowed her to remain a member of their church. They've allowed her to remain in fellowship with them. They haven't excommunicated her. And he refers to this woman that needs dealt with as Jezebel. Now, I doubt that this is her real name, right? Um, because no one names their kid Jezebel, right? And just no one does that, if we're going to be honest. Like, you have never in your life met baby Jezebel. And if you do, look out, because her parents probably worship the devil, right? I'm just throwing that out. It's like naming your kid Hitler. Like, you don't name your kid Jezebel. Um, but no, in, in all seriousness, uh, the name Jezebel is infamous and had been for centuries and centuries. What Jesus has in mind whenever he calls this woman Jezebel uh, is probably the Jezebel from the Old Testament. Right? He's saying that this false teacher reminds him of Jezebel. You'll remember, or I'll refresh your mind if you've forgotten, um, in First and Second Kings, Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. Right? And King Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, and Jezebel, she was a pagan. She was a pagan woman from Moab, and she worshipped the false god Baal, or Baal, if you want to call him that. But I'm an American, so it's Baal. Uh, but she worshipped the false god Baal. And uh, after she married Ahab, she never gave up her, her pagan ways. Ahab was not a godly man. Um, she actually seduced Ahab into idolatry. Uh, and eventually, through seducing her husband into idolatry and the worship of Baal, uh, she ended up enforcing Baal worship throughout the whole northern kingdom of Israel. Right? She was a vile, wicked woman who hated the people of God and encouraged all kinds of immorality. A horrible woman. It's also good to note that God handled her. She was eventually eaten by dogs, if you'll remember that. Uh, but Jesus says that just like Jezebel led many Israelites into idolatry and sexual immorality, 
which was part of the idolatry, this woman in the church in Thyatira was doing the same nonsense. Now, how was she doing this? Well, Jesus says that she calls herself a prophetess. She claimed to speak on behalf of God. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say this. The Spirit spoke to me and said, God told me to tell you. Jesus appeared to me in a vision or a dream, and he said, blank. This woman was a liar. Right? She would fit in well at Bethel Church in California. Right? She claimed to speak on behalf of God as one of his prophets. And when she spoke, she encouraged the people of God to engage in the paganism that surrounded them. That's what she did whenever she spoke. She said, God told me to tell you to go live like the pagans. She encouraged them to bow the knee to the world and compromise on what they knew to be true. But why? Right, what was the reason for this false teaching? Because right, I, I doubt people very often just wake up one day, unless they're like possessed or something, and says, you know, I'm going to introduce a heresy into a church. Um, why, why were some Christians falling for this false teaching, and why was Jezebel teaching this stuff? I, I, I think that it goes back to the trade guilds in the city that we talked about when I was giving you some context. The people in the church were poor because they wouldn't join the guilds. Because the guilds demanded that they partook in feasts uh, to various false gods and worship them. And again, that worship often included sexual immorality as well. So they're poor because they won't join the guilds. And then along comes this Jezebel who tells them, Hey guys, God told me that he doesn't want you to suffer. God told, told me that he wants you to be wealthy. He says it's okay to join these guilds. So go ahead and do whatever they tell you to do. Go ahead and join. It's fine. Right? I think that's what's going on there in Thyatira. I think that's what Jezebel is telling him. This is almost the same stuff that happened in Pergamum that we looked at last week. This false prophet was telling the people of God that it was okay to sin and violate the clear teachings of Scripture. The Bible tells you do not participate in acts of sexual immorality. And the Bible tells you do not participate in idolatry. She was telling him it's okay to contradict the plain teaching of Scripture. She was saying that it's okay to contradict the Lord Jesus and the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament. And she was teaching this. And some people were eating it up because if you followed her teachings, you could avoid hardship. You could avoid hatred. You could be accepted by the world around you. And they were enticed by their flesh to go against the word of God for personal ease and comfort. Is this not the common temptation for every Christian in every age? The temptation that says compromise and see your problem go away. And that is the lie of the serpent. That compromise starts with, has God really said? Has God really said this about sexuality? Has God really said this about gender? Has God really said this about divorce? Has God really said this about idolatry? Whatever the sin might be, it always starts with, well, has God really said that? Did God really mean what he said? It's always how it starts. If you look down into verse 24, Jesus calls this kind of teaching the deep things of Satan. Now, no doubt... <laughs> Uh, Jezebel did not name her doctrine the deep things of Satan. I doubt she thought that was going to pick up, right? That's not exactly going to sell in Christian bookstores, right? That's probably not going to go down. Um, but she probably called what she was teaching 
the deep things of God. And is it, this is common for false teachers. Seriously, tell me if this sounds familiar to you whenever you think of some kind of false teaching that's been introduced to the church. Someone comes along and says, hey guys, I've learned something new. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just funny. Because if it's new, it's probably a heresy. Right? Hey, I've taken this old heresy from like 700 years ago and repackaged it with new words. There. I've learned something new. That's usually how it starts. Someone comes in and says, I've learned something new. Or God has revealed something to me that he's just not revealed to you or any other Christian for that matter. I've found something that the church has gotten wrong for all of this time. Sound familiar? I've got something that you've gotten wrong all this time, and it's deeper than what you've heard. You've just been learning on the surface. You've just been taking Paul for what he said at face value about all these various sins. You've you got to go deeper than that. Let me take you deeper than that so you can see what Paul really said. Whenever what Paul said is black and white, there in the text. <laughs> I'm sorry. They say, let me take you deeper than what you've heard. And Jesus says, yeah, it's deep, sure. <laughs> it's the deep things of Satan. That's what Jesus is saying here. Any teaching that contradicts the word of God is a work of the devil. It's the deep things of Satan. It's the doctrine of demons is what the Apostle Paul would call it. So whenever someone comes along claiming that they must have, or that they have some kind of new teaching, listen to me, we must, must check them against what is written. If we don't, we will be on a one-way trip towards heresy and compromise. All right, so here's your super white bread pastor thing of the night. Read your Bibles and read them every day. And you'll grow, grow, grow. Remember the song we sang in, in Sunday school? Anyhow, read your Bibles, for real. Read them. Study them. Verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus says that he gave her time to repent. I mean, plain. He hadn't visited her with judgment all this time that she had been spouting her heresy and committing spiritual adultery against him. All this time, he hadn't thrown judgment down on her. He was giving her time to repent. All the days that he let her go without judgment was opportunity after opportunity for her to repent and return to him. So let me stop here for a second. If you're harboring some kind of compromise in your heart, if you're compromising on some kind of truth that you find in the word of God, if you're flirting with some sin and indulging yourself, I want you to know that every day that Christ allows you to live, free of his judgment, is mercy towards you. It's mercy towards you. It's mercy to allow you to repent. Romans chapter 2 verse 4, do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? So don't be a fool and live in sin. Repent, because judgment is indeed coming. It was coming for this Jezebel woman. Right? Because she refused to repent. And now we're going to verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, since she wouldn't repent, now it's time for her to be judged and those like her. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. The Lord Jesus says that he is going to throw Jezebel onto a sickbed. He's going to strike her with sickness. Maybe it's something like we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where people were sinning and taking the Lord's Supper inappropriately. And Paul says, and you wonder why some of you are sick and some have even died. Maybe it's going to be sickness like that. 
But he says he's going to strike her with some kind of sickness. He's going to put her on a sick bed. And I think, personally, since the real Jezebel in the Old Testament was eventually killed as an act of God's judgment, that this is a reference to Christ striking this Jezebel dead with some kind of sickness. I think her time to repent had very much uh, run out. Jesus is saying he's going to execute her in this judgment, which is a foreshadowing of her eternal fate. She's going to go to hell. She refused to repent. Christ says, and I'm done. And those who have followed along with her in this spiritual adultery, unless they repent, they will be put through a great tribulation, is what Jesus says, which if you think about it, is a very ironic judgment. In their compromise, the people who had followed this woman were seeking to avoid hardship. And now Jesus says he will ensure that they go through something far worse than poverty unless they repent. I'll put you through a great tribulation. Now, we don't know exactly what this tribulation is, uh, but it's certainly a form of earthly judgment. But I want you to notice something, that they, the ones who followed Jezebel, unlike Jezebel, are still being given time to repent for their compromise and return to the Lord. They're still being given time. Christ is the merciful patient Lord. Even when he threatens discipline and judgment, he tells his people, repent. Repent. I'll give you time to repent. And those who actually belong to him will indeed heed this warning and this discipline and repent. And finally, Jesus says that he will kill her children, which I realize now, this was a fun text to pick for the family worship weekend. Um, This is not a reference to her physical children, though We shouldn't seek to soften the scriptures. God has the right to do whatever he wants in any form of judgment against people. Amen? Whatever he wants. He took David's son from him as a form of judgment on David. But this is not a reference to her physical children. Rather, it's her spiritual children. Right? Those who refuse to repent and continue in their sin and idolatry. Jesus says, I will strike them down. I will strike them down. This is all an incredibly sober warning and promise of judgment on the unrepentant compromisers. And listen, many people today, maybe you yourself are one here who's like this, you wouldn't hardly believe that this comes from the mouth of Jesus. Right? Again, the the wussified, hippie, needy Jesus that Vody Bauckham always talks about. This is not him. But this is the same mouth of the Lord Jesus who says, I've come to die for sinners and save them. It's the one and the same Christ. But now we come to the church-wide result of this judgment that is going to come on Jezebel and those like her. Jesus says, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. All of the churches will hear of Christ's judgment on the compromisers and idolaters, and they will have a holy fear of him as their judge. They'll know that he, the one with eyes like a flame of fire, is the one who sees all and that nothing can be hidden from him. That he is the one with feet of bronze who tramples the unrepentant. They'll know that he is the one who judges rightly and gives judgment to those with evil works. He says all the churches will know, all of the churches will know that Christ's church is no safe place for unrepentant sinners to be in. Now hear me, it's a safe place for penitent sinners. Praise God. Those who come to Christ, repenting of their sin, embracing him by faith. This is the safest place in the world. But Christ says, my church is not a safe place for the impenitent. It is not a safe place for those who will not repent. 
and all in every church will know how Christ detests compromise and that their sins will indeed find them out. I want you to see something very plainly from this threat of punishment. Jesus doesn't play. Write that down. Jesus doesn't play. He doesn't play when it comes to compromise. He doesn't play when it comes to the integrity of his people. He doesn't mess around when it comes to the health of his church. This isn't a game. This isn't a game. Jesus is quite literally deadly serious when it comes to this kind of spiritual adultery and worldliness in his church. And this ought to put godly fear into our hearts. Our God is holy. And he will be worshipped alone. He will be regarded as holy by his people. And his people are to be a holy people. We're to strive for the holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And if we refuse to repent and pursue our Lord and him alone, we should expect severe discipline and judgment from him. We should put fear in our hearts. But at the same time, and maybe you didn't see this, we also ought to see Christ's love and grace towards his people here. Sounds strange, doesn't it? Christian, listen to me. Jesus loves you so much that he will do whatever it takes to keep you and protect you. Remember, this isn't the majority of the church in Thyatira wasn't like this. This was, some, this was a smaller group of people within the church that Jesus says he is going to handle. So in the church in Thyatira, we see a heretic come up and lead some people into apostasy. And Jesus stands on behalf of his people and says, I love these people too much. And I will strike this woman down and all who refuse to repent of her works and teachings. Because I will not have her destroy my church. That's what Jesus is saying. It's what he's doing here. I won't have them destroy my church. I gave my life for this people. And I will see them saved. Christ's love, like that of a parent, leads him to be hostile to any who would hurt his beloved. And like a husband who sees his wife assaulted, Jesus will destroy the one who is hurting his bride. This holy jealousy of Christ for his bride that's displayed in Thyatira should make us rejoice. It's one of many proofs we have that Jesus loves his people. But the whole church hadn't fallen for this false teaching. There were many there who remained faithful. And to those, Jesus was not severe at all, verses 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have till I come. He says to the rest, to those who haven't compromised, to those who refuse to bow down to the world, to those who would rather suffer for Christ and be hated by the world than forsake him, Jesus says to you, you have nothing to fear from me. I can see him having these verses pinned by John with a smile on his face. You have nothing to fear from me. And he says, I have nothing to add to you. He has no other burden. He has no other law or commandment to lay upon us. Christ says in his gospels, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. All the faithful are to do is just that. Continue to be faithful. Jesus is saying, keep doing what you've been doing. Right? Verse 19, keep loving, keep faithfully serving, keep being faithful to me, keep enduring patiently, keep preaching my gospel, keep loving me, keep living upright and righteous lives, keep repenting of your sin, keep believing in me. That's what he's saying, keep doing what you've been doing. He's, and he's affirming that he's very much pleased with those who hadn't compromised. 
This makes me happy that our Lord is not an overly harsh king who cannot be pleased. You ever had that thought about him? I can't please him. I can't make him happy. False. And this says, Jesus says, to the rest of you, I have nothing to add to you. I'm pleased with you. I have no rebuke for you. He's not an overly harsh king who cannot be pleased. He is pleased with faith and faithfulness, the proclamation of his gospel and repentance from sin. Those things please him. If you pursue those things, he is pleased with you, Christian. And listen, this isn't a works-based salvation. I want to be clear about that. All of these things that I just talked about that Christ says pleases him are the fruit of genuine conversion. They're the fruit of genuine faith. All that he's telling the faithful in Thyatira to do is continue living lives of converted people. Keep living like you're saved because that's what you are. Keep living what I've made you into and you'll have nothing to fear from me. That's a blessing for us to know that, that we have nothing to fear from our Lord so long as we don't compromise and remain faithful to him. Now I move to our final section, the promise of rewards to the conquerors. 26 through 28. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He says, to the one who conquers, meaning the one who remains faithful, the one who doesn't compromise, the one who remains faithful until they die or Christ returns, right? He says, the one who's faithful until the end, the one who perseveres to the conqueror, they will receive authority to rule the nations alongside Christ. So he says, I'll give you authority to rule, just like my father gave me authority to rule. You'll share in the messianic rule of Christ at the end of time. This is a reference to Psalm 2, by the way, where Christ is given authority by the Father to rule over all things and to crush those who oppose him, to rule with a rod of iron. And this promise, hear me on this, this is so important. This promise is very encouraging. Christ is saying to the faithful, don't compromise with a world that is going to be shattered like pottery. Don't compromise with a world that's going to be shattered. Keep your eyes focused to the end. Keep focused on what matters. Keep your eyes set on me. This world is indeed passing away and we'd be fools to compromise and abandon our Lord and Savior for this wicked world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And not only a part in the rule of the world to come, but Christ promises the faithful the morning star. The morning star is a reference to Christ himself. In Revelation twenty two sixteen, Jesus says, I am the bright and morning star. What Jesus says is, I will give you myself in the life to come. He says, I will give you myself. Now, this isn't to say that we don't have Christ now as his people, but this is a promise of a fuller, more pure, unveiled experience and possession of Christ for us in the life to come. Christian, that should make you excited. Jesus says, I promise you will have me forever. Unveiled, face to face, 
you'll have me. We will get Christ himself forever. And getting Christ is better than anything this world can tempt us with. Getting Christ is better than anything the world can tempt us with. You guys know the hymn, Take the World But Give Me Jesus. That's this. I will give you myself. God, let them have whatever else. I want the morning star. I want the morning star. Having him is better than any job you could ever have. Having him is better than any amount of money you could ever have in your bank account. Having him is better than the praises of men and acceptance by the world. Having Christ himself more than makes up for any hardship that we may endure as his people on earth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's the Spirit of God saying to you in this letter? What's he saying to you? Is he calling you to repent of some compromise that you've made in your heart? Is he calling you to repent of some sin that you've been flirting with or even indulging yourself with? Is he, is he telling you to fear the judgment of Christ and to flee to him in repentance and faith? Or is he maybe encouraging you in this letter? Reminding you that indeed Christ is pleased with your faithfulness. Reminding you that Christ offers you better promises than the world can. And the kicker is that Christ can deliver on them. Or is he encouraging you by reminding you of the jealous love that Jesus has for you, his bride, that he has made spotless in his sight? Whatever the Spirit of God is saying to you throughout this letter, heed his words. Listen to him. And look to the Lord Jesus. Believe his promises. Believe and fear his threatenings. And conquer by grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For the truth of your word. We say it every week, but thank you for your word. Thank you for the precious promises that the Lord Jesus has given to us here. That he promised us himself. He promises us to rule alongside him. Lord, we thank you for the threats because we know that it's by your threatenings of judgment. That's one of the means that you use to hold us tightly to yourself. God, bind us to you. Christ, bind us to yourself. Forgive us for the compromises we've made in our lives, no matter how small or how great. Help us to hate the world. Not the people, but the godlessness. Help us to love righteousness. To love your truth and never compromise because we love you because you've saved us. Grant us perseverance. Grant us faithfulness. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.